Father God, we thank you for the blessing you are in our life. We thank you for the opportunity to spend this Sabbath day with, with our family here at Forest Lake. We ask that you be with us and bless us and bless the words from your word that we will study today. In your holy and precious name, amen. A few years back, there was a pop song that came out. It had the haunting chorus line of, what do I stand for? What do I stand for? What do I stand for? Some nights I don't know anymore. That's a, that's a thought-provoking question. Why do we, what do we stand for? Why do we do what we do? Why do you make the decisions? Why did you decide to come to church today? To see the kids perform? To commune with others? Why do you go to work on Monday morning? To make a living? To feed your family? Because you enjoy the people you work with? Why do you watch what you watch? Eat what you eat? Go where you go, vacation where you vacation. <clears throat> what, is, what is the logic behind why you do what you do? This question is presented to me in the summer of 2004. <clears throat> Excuse me, allergies get me sometimes. Summer of 2004, I was working with the MAGA book students in Savannah, Georgia. There were four programs that, that summer in Georgia, Cumberland, Morristown, Tennessee, Atlanta, Georgia, Macon, Georgia, and Savannah, Georgia. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the MAGA book program? Right? For those of you who nod, it's a great program that the church runs where our students go door-to-door -door with church literature, children's books, devotional books, cookbooks. They go door-to-door -door, taking donations for a scholarship to go to academy or college. And they, they do it across the whole United States. They do it here in Florida. There'll be a, a group here, uh, several groups here in Florida this summer. They do it across the United States. And it's a way to evangelize Bible studies, pray with individuals. And the summer of 2004, I was helping out with the four programs, and that night I was in Savannah, Georgia, with a young man by the name of Charles. He was 22, 23-year-old pre-med student, and he looked at me and asked that question, Chris, why, why are you here? Why are you doing this? Like, doing what? He said, this is a long week. They work Sunday through Thursday. They get up early in the morning. They eat breakfast. They commune. They study their, their, uh, their canvas, what they're going to say to the individuals at the door. Uh, they do Bible studies and, and all sorts of things. Then we take off and go to homes and businesses, walking door to door with doors slammed in your face, police called on you, dogs chasing you, all sorts of things, usually in the heat of the summertime. And it's, it's a job that usually the students do in the summertime, the 17 to 22, 23-year-olds. And here I am in 2004, a 40-year-old man, and he said, why are you doing this? You have a full-time job, right? It's like, yes, I was principal at the time at Pee Wee Valley, Kentucky, real place. It's in the suburbs, one mile outside of Louisville, Kentucky. So I was the principal there. He said, you have a full-time job. Why are you doing this? They sleep on gym floors when they mag a book. And just for the record, it's MAGA book, not mega book. You'll hear it said differently. MAGA book is a magazine cover with book pages. Mega booking would be just a really big book. So it's, it's pronounced MAGA book. But he wanted to know why I was doing it. And I said, well, let me, let me give you a little backstory of why I, I do some things. I said in, in 1976, I was living in Apopka, Florida, attended Fleece with two E's. Lived up Bear Lake Road. <coughs> Excuse me. I loved working at, uh, or loved going to school at Fleece. My sister went to FLA. My brother and I went to Fleece. My father worked in the conference here. My grandmother lived behind Hoover's, had cousins across the street from Fleece, Swanson's, Christensen's, Jewel's, 
we were all through here. Disney had only been open a few years. Epcot was opening up the summer of 1976. The beach was close by and it didn't snow. I loved living here in Apopka and going to Fleece. Every day, Mr. Chris Litton, who just retired from Advent Health University, Dr. Chris Litton, was a first-year teacher. He would walk us down to the field and we'd play flag football. I love playing flag football, as you saw with Pastor Jeff. In the spring of 1976, my dad took a call to be the publishing director of Topeka, Kansas. Those of you who haven't been to Topeka, Kansas, it's not Central Florida. There is no beach, there is no grandmother, there's no fleece, there's no Disney or Epcot, there's no rock springs, there's nothing that I wanted in Topeka, Kansas. I went from a school of about 320 kids to a school of 19 students in Topeka, first through eighth grade. They didn't have a flag football team, they didn't have a gym, they didn't have a field, except for corn all over on us, I remember that. I was not, I remember crying the night my dad took that job, but he called, he felt called to God to go there. So we moved. And just for the record, I got a great Adventist education in that little school of 19 students. I got a great Adventist education. But I wasn't able to play flag football with my, with my classmates. My dad, knowing that, signed me up for a, a league around the corner from our house in a park where they would practice one day a week and then hop on the bus and go play. My apologies to the Forest Lake teachers who have heard this part of the story. <clears throat> he signed me up, and after school on that one day of the week, I'd go down to the park practice, we'd hop on a bus and drive to the game. And we were really bad. For the record, I did not have Jeff as a wide receiver and I was not the quarterback. So I don't take responsibility for our team being awful. But we lost every game really bad. But I really didn't care. I was playing flag football. And it was the middle of October 1976. And I went to, down to the, to the park to start practicing. And then we hopped on the bus. And as we, after we hop on the bus, you hear the most wonderful sound in the world to a team that's about ready to lose really bad in flag football. The pitter-patter of raindrops on the roof. So we were going to lose flag football today, but we were going to do it in the mud. And playing flag football in the mud is wonderful, especially for a, for a 12-year-old boy in seventh grade. Playing flag football, so we're all excited. We get to the field, we start playing, we play awful, we're getting killed, but we're sliding in the mud, falling in the mud, running in the mud. It was a blast. And I looked at the sideline, and there on the sidelines was a group of moms, soccer moms today we called them, with their umbrella, beating off the rain with the umbrella, not even really watching the game, just talking. But at the far end of the field, with his collar up around his shoulder, in his suit and his dress shoes, was my dad standing in a freezing, cold, October, Kansas rain, watching me play a meaningless football game. And it was that moment, a 12-year-old boy, I sort of stopped in the game and I went, wow, he really, he really cares for me. He really loves me. That was my dad. My dad passed away 444 days ago. I still count. That was my dad. When he was in, in uh, Georgia, Working, I was still in college in Washington, D.C., and I called him one night just sick. I thought I was coming. I had the flu. thought I was coming down with pneumonia. Went to bed that night. Woke up the next morning. My dad was at the foot of the bed. He'd driven all night to be there with me. When I had a college uh, car accident in college, um, hit a truck. You know what? Interesting. Here's a full circle. You know who I was supposed to drive home from that? Russ Webster. I was supposed to drive your son home from school, and I had a car accident. Russ's dad's here. Uh, I was supposed to drive Russ home from school that, that week, and I had a car accident. Hit a tree, flipped a car. 
My dad came and got me. Drove 11 hours. When I had this car accident on the side of my head, you know, I had a lot of car accidents. This thing, just don't ride with me. Just, just a, a, a hint here. Um, I've, I've flipped three vehicles in my lifetime. Uh, that's just the ones I flipped. Uh, but he, he drove, as I was in surgery for this little cut here, he drove all night to be there when I came out of my coma. That was my dad. Love unconditional. Always. I spent, not this past summer, the summer before, as he was dying in the hospital, I spent the whole summer with him at the hospital every day. No vacation days, just sitting there with him in the hospital as, as he passed away. Because that's what he would have done for me. And so I looked at Charles in the summer of 2004 and I said, I do this because my dad asked me to. There's nothing else. I had an epiphany. My heart was touched. My life was changed by my father. I would do anything in the world for him. Drive, set up, sleep on gym floors. I'd do anything in the world for him. That's why I do this in the summertime. And that resonated with Charles. He, he got that. It made me think of the most powerful epiphany that there is in the Bible. Turn with me, if you will, to, to John 3. It will be up on the screen here, but John 3. John 3 has the most famous verse in the Bible, the one you see held up at football games. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. <coughs> Excuse me. But there's a little backstory to it. So I'm going to take some um, literary freedom here to, to sort of fill in the backstory for me. John 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus comes at night. Why does he come at night? Nicodemus is a rich, powerful, influential Pharisee on the Sanhedrin who comes to Jesus at night because this guy is considered a zealot. Uh, he's considered a heretic. Thank you, sir. I love the teachers of fleece, don't you? Forgive me for a second. He was considered a heretic and a zealot. So Nicodemus didn't want to be seen with him, so he comes at night. He knows that this man's a teacher because he's heard his words. He's seen what he's doing, so he wants to figure it out, but he, he's, he's not sure. Jesus knows this, so Jesus jumps right in. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's nothing in Nicodemus' words here that say anything about being born again and seeing the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus re replies, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? Jesus consent continues, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus doesn't really give him any information. Nicodemus is confused. You know how he's, we know he's confused? Look at the next line. Do, mar, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Why does he say do not marvel? Because Nicodemus' face is confused. He's marveling, if you will. You know, I, I, I use this example for why we use words like that. Um, I'm fascinated by highway signs. In Virginia, as you come to the end of an entrance ramp onto the highway, they have a no left-hand turn signal. Now, who comes to an entrance ramp to a highway and says, you know, I think I'll turn left here. I mean, in, in Massachusetts this summer, we found that they have a no U-turn sign. So you come to the end of an entrance ramp and there's a no U-turn sign. You know why they have those signs up? Because someone's done it. Yeah. So, so, so they said, well, let's tell them. So why does Jesus say, do not marvel? Because Nicodemus' face tells him, I'm not understanding what you're saying. You're talking flesh and flesh and born again and, and water and, and all this. I'm not getting this. 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus still processing this. How can these things be? Jesus' answer here, I don't know the tone. What I see here is a man who puts his hand on Nicodemus' shoulder and leans in. And there might be just a, a, a pinch of sarcasm in his voice. I have a, 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 a pinch of sarcasm in my voice sometimes, a gallon of it usually. But he leans into Nicodemus and says, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? A little bit of a jab, I'm sure. But most assuredly, I say, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you, the, you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Then he starts to get to the heart of it with Nicodemus. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, as he touches himself, who is in heaven. Then he does the, the greatest teacher moment. And the picture here, I love this picture. He tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus goes to a teaching moment that he knows uh, Nicodemus will understand. Everybody knows the story of the serpents in the desert. The serpents come out, poisonous serpents. They bite the Israelites. They're going to die. Moses puts together a bronze serpent, holds it up on a staff and says, look, just look on the serpent and believe and you'll be healed. Nicodemus will understand that story. So when, when Jesus presents that story to Nicodemus and he says essentially to Nicodemus, that's who I am. Look upon me and be saved. Look on me and be saved. And something in Nicodemus's mind clicks. That makes sense now. I'm not talking to a heretic or to a prophet or to a great teacher or a rabbi. I'm talking to the Son of God. I'm talking to the man who's come down from heaven to die for my sins. And Jesus confirms that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, you, Nicodemus, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It resonates with Nicodemus. He gets it and it changes his life. I have to believe that Nicodemus prayed a prayer before he went. He's going to see this young man and he prays for wisdom. I've said before, I don't have a, an education sermon. These guys are the greatest sermon I have. You're raising your hand. I wish I could preach a sermon that would bring a flood of money, students, buildings in, but that's not my goal. My goal is for us to look in ourselves and say, what do I stand for? Why do I do what I do? That was Nicodemus's question here, the unwritten question here. Who are you and what can I do greater for God? That was his desire. And I believe Nicodemus had to have prayed before he came. And I want to give you the prayer that I hope Nicodemus prayed. And if not, it's the prayer that I want to pray and the prayer I hope you pray. And it comes from two characters in the Bible. We're going to look at two characters in the Old Testament. Turn to 2 Kings 6. And as you're turning, I'll give you a little backstory. In 2 Kings 6, sorry, in 2 Kings 5, we have the end of the Naaman story. Everybody remembers Naaman and a little maid. Naaman gets leprosy, goes and washes in the river, comes out, he's clean, yay. Gehazi, though, goes and asks for all these things. Naaman gives them to him, and Gehazi gets that leprosy. That's the end of chapter 5. So Elisha's servant, who Gehazi was, is now gone. So Elisha needs a new servant. Servant. He gets the new servant, 
And the beginning of chapter 6, another great story that, that we won't read through. But it's a story of them having not enough room in the school because they have too many students. Praise the Lord. So one of them, one man borrows an axe, goes to chop down a tree. The axe head flies off. Do you remember this story? The axe head flies off into the river. Elisha throws a stick. Axe head floats. That's the first thing. If the Bible's chronological here, that's the first thing that Elisha's new servant sees is this axe head floating. Pretty cool. Serve a great God. He can float an axe head. This story is the next story. And I'll, I'll scan through some of this. But it talks about the king of Syria. This king of Syria who says, my camp's going to be in such and such a place. And he wants to attack the Israelites. But every time he goes to attack the Israelites, guess what? They're gone. So finally he says to somebody, so how do the Israelites know what's going on? Who is a spy in my camp? There's been a lot of temptation to bring the Russians up, and that, but I'm, I'm going to leave that one alone today. <clears throat> Who's the spy in my camp? And somebody goes, no, it's not a spy. It's the prophet Elisha. He knows what you say in your bedroom because of his God. Now, that should be your first sign. Maybe I should leave this guy alone. If he's got a God who can tell me where I'm going. But the king gets mad and says, uh, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. This is verse 10. And he's told... Surely he, Elisha, is in Dothan. So the king during the night sent horses and chariots and grain army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So here's the story. Dothan, Elisha and his servant, and the people of Dothan in there, the king of Syria sends this huge army to surround the city to get Elisha so that Elisha can no longer tell everybody where he's going to attack. Makes sense to the king of Syria. The servant, who's seen the axe head float, remember, wakes up, and it says, And when the servant of man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant, Elisha's servant, said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, let me assure you, his servant did not say it in that calming of a voice. There, there are a lot of ancient uh, empires. You have the, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all pretty cool empires. And they had something in similar they would assimilate the people into their empire. How do we know that? Joseph, not an Egyptian, rises to Egyptian power. Daniel, not a Babylonian, rises to Babylonian power. Ba Daniel, not a Medo or Persian, rises to power. The Greeks aren't in the Bible a whole lot, but the Romans, Herod, is still appointed king. So they would assimilate the people. I've had the opportunity to go to the Louvre several times and the British Museum. You go there and you see the, the culture and the artwork. Babylonian artwork, Persian, Greek, Roman, Egyptian. There's one room, though, in the British Museum in London that's fascinating. It's the Assyrians. It's the only artwork I remember seeing there. It's, a, it's the artwork by Sennacherib, who's in the Bible. It's a room about 35 feet long and about 12 feet high. And from beginning to end, there's one piece of artwork on it, and it's clay drawings. And these clay drawings are of soldiers being beheaded and women and children being disemboweled. That's Assyrian artwork. Why? The Assyrians were not the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, and the Romans and the Greeks. The Assyrians were locusts. When they captured you, they killed everybody and burned your town to the ground. That's what they did. And the servant of Elisha knows that. Here's, what's gonna, here's how your life's going to be. The city's going to be surrounded. They're going to starve us out. They're going to hold off our water. And when we finally give up and they open, we open the gates, they're going to come in and destroy the whole town. Or they're going to get battering rams and take the... They're going to get us. He does not say, alas, my master, what shall we do? He screams, 
essentially that we're dead. But Elisha knows another story. So Elisha answered him, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God's math doesn't always add up, does it? No matter what the odds are against us, there's more for us. We have a heavenly army with us. There's more for us than there is for them always. So he says a simple prayer. Elisha prays, Lord, I pray, open his eyes, the servant's eyes, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a wonderful prayer. Open our eyes. I, I don't know what you need to see. I don't need to know. The person sitting on the pew beside you doesn't need to know. But God knows what you need to see. Open your eyes that you may see. That's the first part of the prayer. The second part of the prayer comes from 1 Samuel 14. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 14. <clears throat> Give you a little backstory here too. My second favorite character in the Bible is David. Why? David did a lot of really horrible, stupid things. And God still called him a man after his own heart because God is a forgiving, loving God. So David is my second favorite Bible character. My first favorite Bible character is David's best friend, Jonathan. A number of years back, I, I read a devotional book for men on inspiring men of the Old Testament. And it had chapters on David and Daniel and Moses and Joseph and all these men. But the one on Jonathan fascinated me because I always loved the stories of Jonathan. The one on Jonathan said this, Jonathan is the epitome of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And here's why the author says this. This is this author. This is not something he's not doing. Any, he's just doing a, a study of, of a, an eye test. He said, in the Old Testament, there's never any reference to Jonathan sinning. Now, I'm not a fool. I know that Jonathan sinned. We all sin. But Jonathan, they don't record any sin that he commits. Jesus Christ, we know, did not sin. Jonathan is the prince. Jesus Christ is the prince of peace. Jonathan gave up his throne, essentially, by promoting David, helping David. Jesus gave up his throne. If you look at Jonathan as the symbolic Jesus in the Old Testament, it makes this story even more compelling and fascinating <clears throat> because you remember the story of David kills Goliath starts to conquer all these things and the people start to sing this song Saul has killed his thousand and David his ten thousand so let's do that math one thousand ten thousand they're saying that Saul the David is ten times greater as a soldier than Saul this infuriated Saul what did he try to do kill David repeatedly who constantly saved David's life Jonathan but think about this. Saul is already king. David's a young man. Saul is going to continue to be king, even if he thinks David's appointed to be king. Who's the person who should hate David? The prince, isn't it? Shouldn't Jonathan hate David? Because David could be taking his place. His lineage could be gone, and David steps into that role. Yet it's Jonathan who continually lifts up David and loves him as he loves himself. What an example Jonathan is to us. 1 Samuel 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. What's an armor bearer? That's a trick question. That's, that's a test question for teachers. What's an armor bearer? Because you, you know the answer, but you're afraid to say somebody who bears the armor because it looks kind of, but it's the right answer, right? Yeah. Is it? Yes, they're, they're thinking about it. <laughs> The armor bearer bears the armor for someone prestigious, the king, the prince, 
a captain of the army. The, that's what the armor bearer does. So the, the prince doesn't want to walk through town clunking around with a shield and a spear with a sword on. So he gives it to the armor bearer, who's a young man who walks beside him or behind him or off to the side and carries his shield and his spear so that he can sort of flaunt and, uh, and walk down the, the, the center of town uh, and look like a prince. Armor bearers were normally like the two young men you saw in that picture this morning. They were, they were Pastor Jeff and myself. They were young, skinny men who were not ready to fight in the army yet. They weren't, if they were soldiers, they'd be soldiers, but they're armor bearers. So the armor bearer is a young man between the ages of 14 and 18 who's carrying the armor of a prince or a king or a captain. So that's who's with, with Jonathan. Then it goes through, and I won't read through the whole story here. It tells where Saul is and Eli and his sons and, and all of those. And then uh, in verse 4 it says, Between the passes, Jonathan sought to go over the Philistines' garrison. And it tells us that Jonathan and the armor bearer go between two huge rocks to get to the Philistines who are on a cliff. Now think about that. Rock here, big enough to have a name. Rock here, big enough to have a name. And a cliff, I did not serve in the military. My father was in the army. I never served in the military. God bless those of you who did. But I've watched enough John Wayne movies to know that this is not a good strategic plan. You do not walk between two large rocks with a cliff above you without an army to take on an army. This is not a... But remember, God doesn't know numbers. So further down it says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that God will work for us. God doesn't know math. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. God doesn't need a thousand people to evangelize Orlando. He needs you. God doesn't need a thousand people or 10,000 people to change this church, to change that school, to change that school, to change this community. He needs you. He doesn't need many. Gideon showed us he doesn't need many, does he? They were outnumbered, what, 100 to 1? I don't know. They were outnumbered ridiculously. God doesn't need Numbers. He just needs you. He turns the armor bearer. Where do we also hear about armor? What does Paul tell you to put on? The whole armor of God, right? The shield and the spear and the sword and, and the breastplate. He, the, God asks you to put on that armor. So he turns to his armor bearer, that young man, the, the you and me, and, and says to this, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or few. And look at the armor bearers. This young man's, young teenage boy's answer is, do all that is in your heart. Here's your heart. Go then. Here am I with you. Here am I. Here's you according to your heart. Jonathan, as your heart beats, my heart beats. If, if you say let's climb that mountain and attack the Philistines, let's do it. If you say let's go that way, you go that way. But my heart beats with your heart. I have to believe that Nicodemus on that night, he went to see that young man, Jesus. That he sat there and he prayed, God, please, two things. Two things. Open my eyes that I may see what I'm doing here and let my heart beat as yours. And that's the prayer. If that's not life transforming for each one of us, God will open what we should be doing. And for some of you, it will be maybe not doing what you're doing now. But that's the prayer. That's the prayer we have to pray continually. I believe it was Nicodemus's prayer that night. Why do I believe it was Nicodemus's prayer? Because you go back to the Bible verse we read this morning, Look at how Nicodemus had changed. In the first part of the story, Nicodemus goes to Jesus at nighttime, sort of hiding. 
Look at John chapter 19, verse 38 and 39. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. He came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Nicodemus' life was so powerfully impacted that night that epiphoral moment with Jesus, it was so powerfully impacted that he went from coming at night so that he wouldn't lose his power, position, and money, that he was willing to take a dead man off the cross in front of the Romans and the Jews. Think about what that meant. It's a simple verse. Think about what that meant to Nicodemus. He just threw everything out the window, didn't he? Everything. Power, money, influence, position, it's all gone because he took a dead man off the cross. But that's what the power of God does in our lives. That's what he'll do in your life. I don't, know your, I don't know your situation. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I serve a heavenly father that does. Our prayer is to have our eyes open to see what he wants us to do. Our prayer is that our heart beats one with the Prince of Peace. And that's my prayer for you this morning.